What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe, and we would like to say a very big thank you this week to our patrons of the Woo-hoo. week. We'd like to say thank you to MK Cook and to Melissa Stone. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. And uh, we are so grateful to you and to everyone who supports this podcast. And if you would like to become a supporter of the bestseller experiment, you can simply pop along right now. There's a there's this amazing feature on all podcasts, it's the pause button. It's not like radio, is it, where if you kind of walk out of the room and you miss the vital <laughs> bit of information, press pause and pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And then you, you get this credit card out and you put your number in it and then you get this really lovely warm feeling it kind of like oozes and you walk around for weeks i've heard people walk around for weeks like floating on a cloud glowing that they know that they're contributing towards the ongoing uh creation yeah and hobnobs (laughs) and world peace absolutely yeah we're bringing world peace we are actually together yeah. We're working on that behind no the question. scenes. Yeah, we haven't mentioned it yet. That's our challenge for 2042, <laughs> I think, isn't it, Marla? Yes. No, but in all seriousness, folks, if, you would, if you'd like to support the podcast, we are very, very appreciative of all support. And, um, and also, if you'd like to join the Academy, oh my gosh, we are, we are getting such amazing people showing up. And you know what? We want to we just remind people, the Academy is not about people who've sold like, you know, 20,000 million books and are looking to it. There are people starting their journey. They're thinking of writing their first book and people who've sold hundreds of thousands of books and you all get to kind of come into this brilliant playground together and have this amazing experience, a huge community with Mark and I there at the helm, kind of like pushing you on and inspiring you and cheering you all the way and coaching you. So if you'd like to be a part of that, the new intake is in September. So folks, you've got to be quick. Get over to the website, academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Uh, and sign up now and we would love to get to know about you and your book project this is your moment don't wait another year don't wait another month this is your moment if you've been thinking about doing this for a while go to the website now and do it mr stay how are you sir i'm good man listen i know we pushed for time today we're both busy busy boys uh uh, and uh but i want an update on your book this is my promise to the listeners i'm going to be prodding you every week about your book how's it going it's going really well mark i've had actually since i made the declaration last week i've had someone reach out and say hey um, you know i work on non-fiction i'd like to kind of give you give you some help and advice so thank you very much i'll be taking that person up on that um weirdly enough in today's (laughs) in today's um in today's uh, uh, interview, there is a reference on a writing perspective to the, the bigger thing that I'm going to be writing about my book. I'm not going to reveal what it is, but listen Ooh. for an Easter egg. I couldn't believe it when it dropped. I'm like, what? This is mad. I've been working this for a few months now. So very excited about that. Very excited about that. And um, 
Yeah, there's just too much to tell you about, really. I, I, I'm, I've, the notebook is almost full. I'm going away this week for a few days, which is always a good time to, I don't know about you, Mark, but when I go away and you clear the clutter of all the yep. stuff you have to do in the house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, guys, if, you, if you're struggling with plot or you're thinking about what idea to write about or what title to pick, go away, even if it's for half a day, go somewhere away from where your to-do list is. Escape the house, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm expecting some incredible flow coming through. So yeah, I'll be updating you next week on that. So. Wicked. Wicked. Exciting stuff, exciting stuff. Um, but yeah, we have got a, just a fascinating interview today an amazing broadcaster voice as well, I've noticed, and there's yes. probably a link there. So, Mark, tell us about today's guest. Uh, it's the brilliant Teresa Driscoll. She's a former BBC TV news presenter whose psychological thrillers have sold more than two million copies across the world. Her first thriller, I Am Watching You, hit Kindle number one in the UK, USA and Australia, has sold more than a million copies in English alone. And... For decades, Teresa was a journalist working across newspapers, magazines and television. So we discuss how her new book, Tell Me Lies, was inspired by a spooky line in a holiday cottage guest book, why she stopped watching television for a year and how becoming genre aware changed her career. So, folks, this is an absolute cracker. So settle in, get yourself a cuppa whatever it is you're doing, and enjoy this chat with Mark chatting to the lovely and wonderfully wise Teresa Driscoll. Teresa Driscoll, welcome to the Best Cell Experiment. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. We've had some sunshine in Devon, so I'm very happy about that. Delighted to be here. Oh, absolute pleasure. And I'm very excited because I've got uh, in my hot little hands here, I've got a copy of your latest thriller, Tell Me Lies. Tell us about Tell Me Lies, and then I'd like to talk about the cottage that inspired it. Okay, okay. So Tell Me Lies is really a dark twist on that huge dilemma, which too many people uh, will have faced or seen their friends face, should you ever forgive a cheating partner. And uh, this is a very sinister twist on that, where we see a couple, um, Hannah and Sam, taking a make or break trip to our cottage in beautiful Cornwall. And seriously strange things start to happen there so that Hannah who is troubled um, not just from the current dilemma but she's had a difficult childhood uh, doesn't know whether she's really in danger whether she's ever really known her husband and that that makes for a quite I hope claustrophobic story. Well, that's the thing about holidays, isn't it? It was um, weirdly enough my first play was about a family in danger of breaking apart and they go on a camping holiday. And it always struck me as very strange that when people are, when a family is fractured, they decide the best thing to do is to cram themselves into as small a space as possible and go away from home and all the things that give them comfort. So there's loads of room for drama there, isn't there? There absolutely is. And I think there's quite a lot of pressure, isn't there, around a holiday? Because everyone needs a break and you go to it, you know, in this circumstance, they're trying to fix a fracture in the relationship. But even if you're not, you go away tired and uh, you have this idyllic idea before you go. And you always hope it turns out. I've had some great holidays, but also there's quite a lot of stress, isn't there? This must be a lovely time. And I used (laughs) to find in the days when I was super busy working in television, I'd nearly always get ill. It's like you keep going, Mm. don't you, while you're busy and then you go on holiday and you get a virus or something so yeah I think it's a great place to do a story because it's 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 quite tricky expectations versus reality even without it being psych thrillers you know Uh, very much so and what fascinates me is you had Owl Cottage is based on a real cottage that you stayed at and there was something I believe written in a guest book that 
freaks you out a bit. Can you tell us about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So I had a lot of bucket and spade holidays with my two boys when I was working in television. And we go down to the Lizard in Cornwall, which I love, stayed mm. in lots of different cottages. And we stayed at the same one twice. And I'm not going to say which one it is, because I have sort of based this thriller there, which feels a bit naughty, really. And I <laughs> I don't want the, the owners to be upset. So I did change the geography and I changed the layout. There was this fab uh, cottage we stayed in it twice. And I read the guest book one night and it said lovely time here apart from the ghost <laughs> now you know i am actually quite easily spooked which for someone who writes like thrillers is really ridiculous but that night i was listening out for every creak in the floorboard and suddenly this really beautiful place for one night until i pulled myself together felt really really different so when i was looking for a setting for this story that's exactly what i wanted somewhere which on the outside was still idyllic you've got this love you never see you've got the owls tooting in the trees but you know, it actually spirals to become quite a dark place. So that's that's why I based it. And in fact, I wanted to go and stay there to celebrate finishing the book, but it's been sold, which oh. is why I wrote in the back of the book, you know, you know, hope there are no ghosts. <laughs> and I, I hope no one will recognize the cottage. Yeah. Setting is is very key for any novel. But for you, for this one, it, that seems to be where it's all clicked into place. Is is that the usual thing with your novels? How how important is setting to you as a writer? Setting is really important. I normally start with characters. I love reading character-led fiction. I try to write character-led fiction. I don't have to let my readers decide whether I manage to pull that off. So it's normally character first, setting second as being quite vivid. And sometimes I use a number of different settings. With this one, I knew I wanted a claustrophobic uh, at atmosphere for the book, for the premise to work. And so I decided on one place with obviously a few little trips out as, as tourists uh, do. And uh, so this cottage was was really key to the story working. And owls. There are lots of oh, yeah. owls in this book. Tell okay. us about owls. Yeah, well, OK, look, you know, I hold my hands up here. This is someone who took 10 years to get published. You know, <laughs> I love owls, you know, and uh, I think, you know, although owls get creepy in my this book, you know, I think they're fabulous and I'm a big fan. So I've had this owl notebook for years. I use a different notebook for every uh, novel. So I was thrilled when I finally got all these ideas and they came together and I thought, yep, yeah, it's going to be Owl Cottage. Now, just, just for listeners on audio, you were holding up a sign there that said, don't give up, which is being held up by a little adorable owl. Um, yes, so, well described, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk about the, the don't give upness of your career, because I think it's, it's, it's one of the things that really, really defines it. Let's go way, way back, though, because I, I believe even in primary school, you were writing, you, you, well, you were writing and writing in notebooks even then. T tell us about that. Yeah, I, I was an avid reader as a very small child. And, you know, even primary school, I wanted to have my name on the spine of a book, I, you know, dream precocious or what, but I dreamt of being an author. And so I used to take exercise books from the stationery cover, start lots of books, classic writer to be, never finished them, but always started <laughs> them well, you know, and then went right through school and met the careers advisor in the sixth form and said, look, you know, I'd love to write fiction. And they said, look, you know, you've got great writing talent thank you very much but you probably need a good deal more life experience to write mm. fiction how about journalism and this wasn't on my radar at all I didn't know any journalists I didn't know about training and they kindly put me in touch with a number of people who'd done newspaper training uh, with the NCTJ who trained uh, journalists at the time and so I thought this is brilliant writing and a paycheck we'll mm. do that then so I went into newspaper journalism absolutely loved it 
ended up sort of almost accidentally moving into television uh, reporting and then television news presenting, loved it all. But it meant there wasn't really any time for fiction. It was a very busy time, especially juggling um, a TV career uh, with bringing up two gorgeous boys. So it wasn't until I got to my 40s that I found space again and thought, right, now's the time. I'm going to have a go at this fiction. And promptly took 10 years and four unpublished books, Mark, (laughs) (laughs) to get going. (laughs) Is that all? Well, as I understand it, your first novel uh, took you a year. uh, And the thing we talk about finding time to write and the thing that you sacrificed in order to write was watching TV for a year. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and considering I worked in television, it was a bit weird, wasn't it? But, you know, it was, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I w- would 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 do my uh, job on presenting the BBC News, and then I'd come home, and instead of watching TV to relax, I would write, right. um, which I loved. And I uh, wrote that uh, the first book that got published. At that I'd have written other books that hadn't been published, but the one that got published that's uh, ha- eventually how it happened. Um, and uh, it was it was just the discipline, wasn't it? Putting you know the bum on the seat and getting the job done, yeah. which of course I learnt uh, from all my years in journalism, and keeping going because having uh, you know written books that didn't get published, it, it was learning to dig deep and keep going. It's the resilience, I think, that you know when I'm talking to other writers, I I think you need most to to work at. You know, it's a uh, very much a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. And uh, even once I got published, my first two books were family dramas and you know hold my hands up now they didn't sell very well initially and so even when I had that great break into the industry I had to learn to dig deep again change genre find a new publisher and then magically I I got my breakout book well that's a lot to unpack there Teresa let's let's go back a bit there because let's talk about the rejections first of all because there were uh-huh. I, be, I believe you wrote four unpublished novels yeah and yeah. what as I understand it the rejections were probably the worst kind of rejections, which were the near misses, which are the ones that said, oh, we love your writing. You'll definitely be a novelist one day, just not with us. Those are the worst, aren't they? They are. And I think that um, when I talk to writers in particular, I try to give my my best advice is being genre aware. And when I go back and try to uh, analyse why I took so long, I call it the scenic route, but why it took so long. In my cases, my writing was falling between two genres. It was falling between dark family drama and uh, psychological suspense. And so editors were all very kindly saying, we love your voice, Teresa, but you're not quite dark enough for psych suspense and you're too dark for my list of family dramas. And I think the reason I made that mistake, Mark, is because as a journalist, I didn't unpack stories as in by genre, by category. Mm -hmm. I used to analyze how strong a story is this is this going to go on the front page or is it going to be an inside page lead or is it going to be a minor story and i'd be doing everything from human interest features to seriously nasty crime stories Mm. and but sometimes you go to court and the stories wouldn't be strong so when i started writing fiction i made the mistake of of not analyzing and delivering to genre expectations it wasn't till i sat down and really analysed all the rejection, thought you've got to separate, you know, all the stories of bad things happening to good people. But is this really going to be a crime story or psych suspense, in which case deliver on the genre expectations or a family drama where you're going to be pushing away, you know, any investigation, etc. And so that's how I got published two family dramas first, um, and one of them sold at auction in Germany. I did quite well there. Not so great sales in the UK initially. 
Um, and that's that's my top tip. Be genre aware. Cross genre can work. Some indies are doing great things in cross genre, but you're making it hard for yourself from the beginning if you're not sufficiently genre aware. Mm, absolutely. Let's talk about those first two books. There's Recipes for Melissa, which came out in 2015, and Last Kiss Goodnight, which was 2016. And as you described them, they're, they're family dramas. I mean, we're just very often that debut. We're just happy to be published, aren't we? I mean, we're what was what was that experience like? And 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 the kind of the bitter sweetness of having the auction, having all that excitement, and then the sales just not delivering yeah. to anticipation. I was thrilled, of course, to be published, and super grateful to the publishers and the editors, um, you know, for believing in me. I was lucky. I I got a superstar agent who I'm still with, you know, has always believed in my voice. So it was terrific. But what I hadn't been prepared for, having had such a great response initially from agents to my first manuscript, Recipes Melissa, was, as I say, we got this auction in Germany. All the big five in the UK turned it down. And it went to a digital first publisher, hugely enthusiastic editor, had been with the Big Five previously, who had a big dream for it and really thought it was going to get good numbers. And it got beautifully reviewed, but it didn't get big numbers initially. And I I didn't know really how to deal with that because mm-hmm. I was thrilled to be published. But the reality is I'm a freelance. You need to make money. And it was very disappointing initially. So the second book was in a two-book contract. And that similarly fabulous reviews, but unfortunately, similarly, a little bit better, but not great numbers. And I wrote a third book for that publisher, and they turned it down. And that really shook me. I wasn't prepared for that, because we tend to go into this not knowing the industry. And of course, Mm. it's difficult for authors being honest and talking about hiccups and the roller coaster, because if you're in a trough, you don't want to talk about it. Mm. And so when I was in that dip, um, I was still, you know, trying to be buzzy. I didn't want to lose my chance of promoting myself. Um, it was hard to be honest, but it was devastating uh, yeah. to have um, poor numbers. And then, of course, you have the fear of bad track that you maybe you're not going to get yourself out of the hole. So this is 2016, and um, I was out of contract. Uh, publisher said they wanted to publish me again, but not that book, thank you. And so I sat at this very desk. And uh, out of contract, and I would say out of desperation, wrote um, my first psych thriller, which is called I Am Watching You. And I bounced it past my lovely agent, who just sent me back an email saying, wow, Teresa, exclamation marks. <laughs> yes, let's run with this darker voice, my other voice. But I, I I got a deal for that with a new publisher, again, digital, with Thomas and Mercer. Low expectations this time. You know, I didn't, I just was so pleased to have an advance. <laughs> you know, thank you. That's some money I don't have to pay back. However, this does. Um, two book deal. Um, just delighted to be back in the game because um, I know how hard it can be to stay published now. Uh, low expectations. And and then unbelievably, the book took off. Fantastic. Now, we're recording this in May 2023, and there's a conversation in the industry at the moment. Uh, there was an article on the bookseller quite recently, and every author Facebook group that I'm in was talking about this, where authors new to the industry really don't know what to expect because they they see the headlines with the six-figure deals and, and the major bestsellers that get adapted into movies and all of that good stuff. But for the rest of us, I mean, it's, it is – the you know the mid list the the sales that tick along the you know it's it's not quite the dazzling career that some of us might imagine what 
I mean, you had worked in the media. What were your expectations of of publishing, and, and what were the big surprises um, when you when you were published? Because it was my big dream, there's no question I was thrilled to be published. That in itself was a life goal. So I was delighted to be published. But because I have been a freelance pretty much my entire career, um, right through through my years in television, I was a a freelance uh, working on short-term contracts. So when I came into publishing, you know, I had an expectation what I hoped hope to make some money as part of my freelance income Mm -hmm. and so it was a bit of a shock to me that it was quite difficult as you say you know it's it's rare those big deals isn't it Mm. and uh, I was lucky I did get um, a reasonable advance from my German auction for my first family drama and that kept me ticking over for a while Mm. but once uh, you know that was used up I suddenly realized it was going to be more difficult Um, and I got a you know, I got an advance, not a big advance for my thrillers. I'm sure contractually, I'm not allowed to say how much, but it was like I was as a freelance grateful for it. But I think you realise as you get to know authors and you don't meet many authors until you're published. You know, mm. I, I know lots of lovely mm. author friends now, but you just don't, do you? So you don't get these, uh, you know, water cooler conversations where mm. the reality of the industry is, you know, shared with you. And so I I look forward to being published, but I did expect to make a bit more money early on. And it was a shock talking to other authors how difficult it is to make a living. So all the more that I pinch myself, Mark, that things came good for me with this breakout book at the time when I my expectations had actually, you know, slumped. Well, this is this is the the fairy tale moment of the story, isn't it? Let, let's talk about. I, I am watching you. wasn't just a hit; it was a smash hit, wasn't it? Tell us, tell us some. Um, yeah. Tell us how 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 all the, uh, that came about. Well, basically, a Thomas and Mercer, um, uh, an imprint owned by Amazon Publishing, and so they um, loved the book. As I say, had great faith in the book, um, and they they offered me a Kindle first promotion. That, that it's called Amazon first, I think now, isn't mm-hmm. it? And it, it basically is a promotion where for a month your book goes out early and people who are prime customers can have access to the book for free and others can buy it for 99p. Yeah. And the idea is to garner a lot of um, reviews over a month, see how the book's going to go, and then you get your proper launch. And I remember having a discussion a, with my agent, you know, this is me being really also saying, well, I don't want to give the book away, do I? <laughs> you know, and they said, well, they will pay you. It's not giving it away. They are prime customers. And I said, well, surely if I do that, I want to buy it, you know. And I, I can be honest about that. But, you know, they said this is a great visibility opportunity mm. and we think it's a great book and it, we think it'll really launch it well. And I agonised and agonised. And I remember finally saying to my agent, because things didn't go well with the first genre, if I don't do this and it doesn't go well, I'll never forgive myself. I'll always be wondering, you know, what might have happened. So I said, yes. So the book goes into Amazon Prime and, you know, 24 hours after it, you know, going out, my husband's shouting up the stairs. It's number one, Teresa. It's number one. <laughs> I was going, what category? We've got a number one category. Whoopie doopie. And he's going, no, it's number one in the whole Kindle in the UK. And a few hours later, America, then Australia, and then Canada. Wow. And this was back when this just didn't happen. Yeah. And I thought, well, oh, that would be marvellous. I'll have my 24 hours of fame, you know. And it just stayed there. And <laughs> the thing we all dream of, which is, um, you know, reader recommendation then kicked in alongside this you know promotional mach- machine and it kept going and i think well i know we we sold over 1.3 million now and i say that not to both wow. because you know look this is a book i wrote in the same year i had one rejected yeah so how extraordinary 
That is amazing. How much did you know about Thomas and Mercer going in? Because we, we've had the wonderful Mark Edwards on the podcast a couple of times, and he's a Thomas and Mercer author. And he was talking very honestly about the fact that, you know, for a long time, high street bookshops wouldn't stock the books because they knew it was an Amazon imprint. Uh I think a lot of us are, are kind of, you know, slightly iffy maybe about digital first publishers, particularly Amazon digital first publishers. But, you know, they've they've changed your life, haven't they? Yeah, and here's the thing. Look, you know, I know it can be controversial for some people and I don't like to get sucked into that. I was turned down by every one of the big five publishers. Right. You know, I love bookshops. Mm. I dreamt being in bookshops. I buy from bookshops. But I feel no guilt that when this, this you know, lovely publisher came along and said, you know, despite my bag track, <laughs> we love this book, we'll give it a go. I wasn't going to say, oh, no, you know, perhaps I shouldn't. Um They've been terrific to work with. I did know of Mark Edwards. I knew his books. I knew he was with them. Um, I loved my editor. You know, yeah. immediately we clicked and my agent said, I think you're a good fit. So I was just hugely relieved for them to have faith and to give me a chance. And so, as I say, it wasn't like <laughs> I was in a position to be, you know, worrying about which publisher I was going with. I was super grateful. And they have you know, done wonders ever since. They're a great publisher to work with, you know, collaborative, you know, they they let me, uh, you know, get involved in what covers I have, the titles and so on. So I've had a really good experience with them, really good. Wonderful stuff. Now, you mentioned a dark voice earlier. So it talked about using your dark voice and you started out writing these family dramas. Was that dark voice always there? Were you ever surprised by it? Did it come easily? Where did it come from? I think it's always been there. And the, the issue when I was writing um, family dramas, there was always a real dark theme, right. you know, bubbling under the surface, not necessarily a crime per se, but very on the fringe of moral, you know, judgments. There would always be something dark there, which is why it was quite difficult for my writing to fit in family dramas. But I love highly emotional content emotional resonance in stories. I love character fiction. So I kind of thought I, I'd probably sit better in a dark family drama. And the reality is I covered a lot of court cases. I feel very strongly about all the ripples in the pools from court cases, you know, the witnesses, the bystanders, the relatives of victims. And so I realised that the emotional resonance I wanted to get across was actually better and would work better in Sykes, Willis and Shaw. That's turned out to be the case. We have found we've had a lot of guests on uh, the podcast, journalists and lawyers who see the dark side of life and they all end up writing thrillers. None of them end up writing fluffy romances. They all end up writing no, thrillers. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think I, I mean, I, I respect anyone working in any way they choose to work. I don't personally ever take true stories and use them mm -hmm. as a as a bounce for a, a thriller. And I think that's partly because I've just seen such misery in the real world. It wouldn't feel right to me personally, and that's not mm -hmm. judging others. But what I definitely do is take the emotional landscape of some of the stuff I witnessed. I mean, I've, I've you know, I've interviewed the mother of one of the victims of the Moors murders, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. And I've never forgotten what an extraordinary, determined, dignified, mm -hmm. amazing 
woman she was this was the late Anne West and um, mm. she's no longer with us but and her daughter Leslie Ann Downey was was one of those victims I also interviewed I remember um uh Diana Lamplew the mother of Susie Lamplew mm. who set up the Susie Lamplew Trust she was a state agent who went missing so kind of the mothers who've lost someone uh you know I covered a lot of those stories and you know very very difficult um territory and I'm often thinking of them when I write fiction it feels like a safe space mark to examine that emotional landscape um and to to shine a light on some of the the themes that troubled me and try and respect the strength of spirit of human spirit in overcoming adversity and i i always try if possible to walk them back out into the sunshine if i can mm-hmm. uh, get some kind of justice in fiction if yeah. if not in the real world yeah that's very true and did writing these these thrillers with the darker voice, did it change your method at all? Were you writing in a different way, in a different style? Um, I would say that I wish I had a different method to write, to be honest. <laughs> I, I'm still a pantser. I do plot a bit now. Um, but my my process is not is not particularly practical. Um, and I think it's being a journalist for so many years. I've, I've made my peace with it now, but, and I realise there's no black or white, there's only the way you write, isn't yes, there? Yes, very much so. But when I was a journalist, you know, two there were two processes, news gathering and then writing it up. And write it up, Teresa was was deliriously happy, trying <laughs> to use my best writing skill. The story had been gifted to me from the real world. Uh, I now find that my brain is still stuck in that mode with fiction. So writer up Teresa is very happy. But where it comes from, I call a maker up Teresa, my imagination and creative self. It's like an app that only works in the background, except when you open it and then it freezes. So if I confront it and say, where's the next story, Teresa? You know, where's the Nothing happens. So I get an idea. I'll get a character. I'll get a setting. And then I just have to go for a lot of long walks and wait. And if I wait... My imagination, my creative self, make it up Teresa, as I call her, fires scenes at me. And it's like watching a film. Yeah. And it's just joyful and it feels magical. And I always think, thank goodness, you know, that's how this story came. Uh, and then I then I write it up. So, I, so I'm not somebody who can do chapter plans and plots and things because the story comes in that magical way. I'm very Stephen King, write with the door closed, mm. edit with the door open. I can analyse once it's there but I have to work this way. So yes. not very practical process, no, it's, really. No, I, I think it sounds great. I can relate to that very much so. That idea that it's you've got this app at the back of your brain ticking away, um, but like I say, when you try and open it and make it actually do something or force it to do something, it, it completely crashes. You mentioned you have a notebook for every project, which is something that I do as well. And whenever, yeah. uh, not very often when I tell other writers that, they say, oh, I love notebooks, but I'm too scared to write in them. I mean, I just get in there and make a mess. What 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 about you? Do you just what's your the notes? The notes are. I mean, it's in practice. I say I often get ideas and scenes flowing, and and when I'm out and about, or when I'm doing the laundry or whatever, then mm-hmm. you know that doesn't work at the desk. So I'm jotting things down very fast in the notebook. It's all the jottings of the things I need to write up later, rather than planning. And so it'll be weird little things to jog my memory of what's fired but my notebooks are, are critical I, I love them because they might have lots of dash notes here and there and yeah. they, it doesn't seem to be very organized but it's the way my cri- creative process fires and works and that's really exciting to me yeah. because I often look at it and think well where did that come from it's 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 extraordinary and uh 
it, it quite excites me. And I like to be excited when I'm writing. Yeah. My editors have been lovely. You know, I think it must be easier for them to work with planners. And, you know, I remember having lunch with an ed- my editor once and I was halfway through a book and she said, I'd really like to talk about, uh, you know, where you're at. And I was petrified meeting someone when I'm halfway through a book. And lovely venue, lovely lunch and everything. I was like this, eyes wide. And <laughs> and she was asking me questions. And I had to go down to the loo and pace about to figure out, try and get, come on the other bit of the brain yeah. <laughs> to come back. And, and I, eventually now she said, oh, I realise, you know, I need to speak to you the day before or three days before, <laughs> send you the notes. And then I can go on walks and then I can come and talk. I just, as you say, app frozen. Yes, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm the same actually. I, uh, if you put me on the spot and ask me what's going to happen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like you. I, I, I become much more of a pantser, and I will put my characters in a situation, not really have much of a clue as to how they're going to get out of it. And sometimes in my notebook, I will just go, "How are they going to get out of this one?" And then when I come down the next morning, that's my challenge. That's where I start. So that, it, that's exactly me too. Yeah. I will present. Right, you know, make it up, Teresa, with the problem. Yeah. Ask the question, and then just relax. It's called the shower principle, isn't it? Where you 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 step back from the thing you're trying to resolve and just wait for it to happen when you're not staring at it. Absolutely, so, yeah, that's I th- definitely how it works for me. I think it comes with experience as well in trusting the process and knowing that there's going to be more where that came from. That's it. And for me, it's been about making peace with my process because I used to worry that it wasn't professional enough, especially once you're in an industry and you've got two book deals Mm. and you need to be sending uh, premises for future books and so on. It's tricky if you work this way. Um, But I have come to the point where I'm confident enough to say this is how I work. It's always worked so far. We've got six thrillers, you know, and uh, I'm I'm very grateful to my readers. They've done well. I still worry about it if I have pressure put on me. So Mm. I have to trust in the magic. I can analyse once we get to the editing stage. That's fine because the book exists, you know. I'm not worrying about whether it will come good. Absolutely. Now, am I right in thinking, you mentioned him already, Stephen King. Stephen King gave you some advice on editing. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I I love Stephen King's on writing. You know, it's just such a great book, isn't it? And I used to be a perfectionist where I'd rewrite things in the end all those books that didn't get published I'd be rewriting trying to get the perfect opening and now I my top tip is always write in forward gear and this was something that Stephen King says in there write you know without sharing with other people so they don't raise an eyebrow at you and throw you off you know write when you're excited and you dream about it and he actually says write 2,000 words a day I didn't always manage that but I did learn to write in forward gear with enthusiasm where you're believing in the magic just with the door shut. And uh, I do think that's critical. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, you and I have something in common. uh, And like I said, we're recording this in May. Uh, You worked in television and you once interviewed Dame Edna Everidge, which I have as well. So how how was that experience? Uh, Because Barry Humphreys recently passed away at the time of recording. And, And what are the big lessons you've taken from sort of journalism and and speaking to people like like that in the in the media i was a big fan um when i got to interview dame edna and when dame edna was in the room you'll know it's dame edna isn't it yeah. there's no other conversation to be had <laughs> uh, barry's not there so i i felt it was tremendous privilege because i was a big fan um but um when dame edna sat down she started talking about my husband you know, this was live and my dog and uh i thought she's researched me and that was then <laughs> 
petrified, Mark, <laughs> because, you know, you know how Dame Ender could be. Yeah. Unfortunately, I got off fairly lightly, but she teased quite a lot. And it was spectacular experience. It was a real highlight. And of course, you know, you know, sadly lost um, uh, Barry Humphreys, as you say. So I think what a privilege now that I got that one opportunity. And I think all the years in journalism, um, it, it taught me to to respect the people who, you know, they are, I mean, obviously he was, you know, a, a wonderful uh, entertainer and actor, but, you know, you get these highs and lows, but it's 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 seeing humankind, isn't it, in all shapes and forms, the yeah. highs, the lows, the, as I say, the strength in the face of adversity, the yeah. talent and the people who are themselves. That's what the joy for me throughout my years in journalism, seeing people, you know, who, you know, real, true to themselves, uh, making the most of life, whatever their circumstance. That was an absolute privilege. Wonderful. You also interviewed Father Christmas, I believe. Um, uh, how was he and did you get a peek at his list? Um, he was utterly charming and he let me borrow his snowmobile. <laughs> this was in Lapland. Actually, it was quite a story because we were. I worked on an evening newspaper and um, the uh, news editor ran a competition um, for to uh, a child to be taken to Lapland to meet the real Father Christmas. Wow. And uh, I was tasked with, you know, running the competition and he was going to go on the prize. So I did all this and a lovely little girl won the competition and was we arranged it all. And then the <laughs> the organisers who were linked with an airline said, well, as a girl's one, we'd like a, you know, a female reporter to go on the trip. So the news editor was not very happy that I got to go instead. And it was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, Captain Wood Reindeer met them all, borrowed the snowmobile. And I just thought, well, you know, and they're paying me and they're paying me. This is not a bad job. Brilliant. Fantastic. What's coming next, Teresa? What's what's coming after uh, Tell Me Lies? Well, I'm already working on the next psych thriller. I mean, you always think you can take a little break, have a little, you know, and then the voices start whispering in the ear and you go on the walks <laughs> and the scenes start playing. That's what's been happening. I'm at the stage where I'm not sharing anything about it because, as I say, if anyone raises their eyebrow at me, I'll be thrown off. Yeah. So I'm at the stage where it's mine, my little project, and I'm enjoying writing it. That's a wonderful stage. Teresa, that's been wonderful speaking to you. Folks, Tell Me Lies is out there now, along with some great thrillers as well. Uh, thanks so much for speaking to you and I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. I love it when we get kind of ex-TV presenters on the show because they just have a way of talking. You feel like you're just <laughs> getting sucked into this. Like, isn't it brilliant? Good, good, love good it. radio voice, good TV voice. Excellent. Yeah, Really, it's, really it's good. It's a pleasure. Abs yeah, yeah. It's really lovely. Love, Teresa, absolutely lovely. And I'd like to start, let's dive into this incredible story when you think about it. I mean, we've heard a few of these over our time, haven't we? But... What a great reminder to everyone out there who's thinking it's never going to happen. I'm not good enough. It's I'm struggling. I've had too many rejections. I'm going to stop writing. Ten years, four unpublished books, and then <laughs> this incredible success. I mean, how many times do we have to remind you, folks? I do wonder because it, it's it, there's so much evidence of this idea, and and the thing that um, the thing that really stood out for me was. Teresa said the first part of her career, she realizes looking back, was about learning resilience. And it's training for resilience, isn't it? That's what, that's what this stage of everyone's career is. Absolutely. I think she was inspired by the don't give up owl 
So uh, I do encourage you to check this out on YouTube. She does have this owl that says that's holding up a little sign saying "Don't give up," and I think if you need a little totem like that to keep you going, because this game is so much about resilience and sticking it out, and 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 sometimes it's reinvention as well, which is something that Teresa has done. And again, in the extended version, we're going to talk about that whole genre aware thing, and and how and how that changed everything. But um, yeah, I mean, I've had this this year. I had you know ups and downs, and I've had I'm I'm just coming out of a down. I'm just coming out, and and I've got a project on the horizon that I'm working on with someone else that I can't talk about yet. But we're two authors who've kind of oh. We are fed up with being weird. We're going to write something that's genre aware, and uh, you know, so uh, segue. yeah, so uh, so yeah, it's uh, you have got to really, really want this, and I I totally understand people who feel browbeaten by it, or maybe you know her career could have ended with those first two books, and people would have been that's great. Teresa wrote a couple of books, fantastic, but she yeah. kept going and she kept going and she kept going. That this is the key thing. This is for me, this is so important because resilience and resilience isn't something that firstly is easy to pronounce uh, in the morning. <laughs> resilience is definitely something which is a skill. It's a learned behavior. And I want everyone to realize that when you feel browbeaten, when you when you are at that point where you're just done that's where you're about to get your resilience. And no one realizes it. It's like, well, some people do, but a lot of people don't realize that they're facing a brick wall and that brick wall is called resilience. And if you are willing to try and smash through it or even just climb over it, walk around it, usually it's a better idea. <laughs> but if you're willing to do that, you build your resilience. It's like working out at the gym on the resilience machine. And the more you work out on it, the more you move towards the chances of something like this happening that we saw with Teresa, I mean, 1.3 million sales. Like, I mean, you could tell when she was telling the story, she's still kind of a bit flabbergasted by what <laughs> I don't think she still quite <laughs> believes. It's like, almost like she's talking about someone else's story, but that's because she kept going. And I want everyone to, I mean, you know, we talk about the owl. I hope this podcast is the owl for some people. I hope you show up each week and we give you a little bit of a, and the, you know, the inspira- inspiration we get from the authors, because this is what we're hoping to, to, to build in people. It's this idea to, you've just got to keep on going. And um, the minute you stop, that's the minute when all the, all the dreams end, you know, it's when nothing will happen if you stop writing. So great reminder from Teresa. So so I do, good I, I do appreciate it can it can be really really hard and it can feel like there's never going to be an end to it and maybe it's okay to take a break we've got someone in the academy yeah. who's taken a break of something like eight years and is now coming back into it and real life can knock you about a bit and knock you back and if it's making you unhappy or making you ill uh then you know get help and maybe step back but it's always there. It's, you know, this is the great thing about publishing and self-publishing now. The the opportunity, that door is always open. You know, you've always you, got the chance to come back to it any time. Yeah. Do you, and do you know what I'd say? I would say to people, take a break from maybe writing the book if you're really, really struggling with it. But don't take a break from writing. Switch from writing your book to journaling. Yes. And journal about what you're experiencing. Because mm. you know what? Just writing, you're going to keep your writing chops going by journaling. Journaling, something might come through that process that will be a solution for you or a new idea for a book. 
or, or something that will start marinating in you for a few months. But don't stop writing. Take a break from the thing that's causing you the challenge. Um, or, or like, I mean, like you say, like this one person who's, who's just joined the academy eight years um, since, since they, they, they had kind of really got stuck into their writing. Um, so that's another idea is to, to, to find a community or take a course or, you know, I mean, join the academy, like do something which will shift you from the stuckness because that's where, that's really where we, we all end up. We, we all, when we're going, when we go with the ups and downs you talked about earlier, when we go down and we end up in the valley, we're staring up at this big hill going, oh, have I got the energy to do it? But mm -hmm. that's the low point because you're not going to go any lower than the valley. And at that point, you just have to start looking up and thinking, okay, let's do this. And sometimes people need to hang around there for a little bit. But mm -hmm. um, journal, honestly, if you don't journal, if you've never tried it, if you tried it and you didn't get into it, I've journaled every single day for the last, I can't even remember now how many years. And it's, it's something magical about processing your thoughts onto paper. Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably even scientifically proven now that there's some value in doing that. But so, yeah, I think I think it's good. But we don't want to put, put people off, um, you know, sometimes. I mean, it might, might be like for you, Mark, you know how you put your book away after you've written the first draft, leave it for six weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe if someone's really, really, really stuck, put the book away for six weeks. Start on something new. Write a short story, actually, is a great thing. Or journal. Yeah. There's loads yeah. of options. Loads yeah. of options. We, we had someone in the academy. We had a craft coaching session last night. Someone in the academy who had really struggled with their first draft, really hated their protagonist, went away for a week, <laughs> a week on holiday, and came back and was like, I love this now. This is great. I love my protagonist. So, you know, change is good as a rest kind of thing. Yeah, you know, it's, it does totally. make a difference. Yeah. Let's talk as well about, Teresa mentioned about this life goal of publishing a book. I, I love that. It was such simplicity. I think, and obviously this podcast, you know, we do obviously, you know, focus on best-selling books and, and that's, but I love the idea that you can just have this goal of wanting to publish a book because that has to come first. You can't have a, you know, a successful book until it's actually published. So I always think people should have some kind of stages to their goals. Um, and to call it a life goal, I think was brilliant because it is it is a goal which when you achieve it you remember it for the rest of your life it's something yeah. never, no one can ever take away from you mm. can you think back mark to the time when you f your first book was published what that feeling was like when you just you know before it even started like going out into the world and you just knew that it was going to go out there well it was funny enough it's about 10 years ago because i've uh i've been going back on my blog and looking at my diary from 10 years ago when we were in post-production on robot overlords so that was when I knew it was going to be published one way or the other, which is, uh, you know, which very often when you're writing a novel on spec, you have no idea what's going to happen with it. But I kind of knew that this was, this was going to happen. So it was, uh, focuses the mind, I can tell you that. And it's, 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 it's an unreal feel, feeling. And it's funny enough, it's still the only book where I ever got any ARCs, proof copies, advanced reading copies. So I got the advanced reading copies and that was kind of, oh, I'm a big boy now. <laughs> That's the thing. I, I, it, I mean, it does bring a new level of confidence and belief mm. because we always talk about in the academy that when you achieve something, you can never question whether you're going to be able to do it in the future. And you can kind of let go of it because we, we, we carry all these things with us when we move forward in life and especially writing all these questions about, you know, can I finish a book? Will I ever publish a book? Will anyone buy it? 
And I think part of the process in life, and especially through writing process, is accomplishing and achieving those milestone moments so mm. that you can just let go of them. Yeah. And you can then start worrying about something bigger. It's in the past. Yeah, you got all the worries <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. All, but, but that's a good thing because you're making progress. But I, I think people, we get so consumed by worrying about, will I ever like, you know, just even finishing your first ever chapter one, you know, no one can ever take that away from you. You've started a book. You've Because there is a point, point, isn't there, where people think about writing a book and then they start writing it. And that moment where they cross the threshold and they start writing it, again, they're now a writer. They're now in the process of writing that yep. book and they can't ever say, oh, I'm going to be thinking about writing a book for the rest of my life. No, you're actually doing it. Doing so it's just, it, yeah. it's just good to remember that, I think, um, as you, you know, there's always going to be something else in front of you, but they, they, get, they get bigger. It doesn't mean they get harder. They just get bigger in terms of the potential and excitement and, you know, real world stuff where it can become reality in many ways. But well, as, it, as, as, as Joanne Harris said in episode four, episode four of yeah. this podcast, uh, she said, if you're a writer, if you're writing, you're a writer. It's as simple yeah. as that. You know, if you're putting pen to paper, you're a writer. And that can, a lot of people don't even get that far, you know? So, uh, well, they might yeah. get that far, but they don't get that far in their mind. Mm. They don't believe it or they don't allow themselves to own it. And I think that's a big shift that most, most everyone has to make at some point. And only you can decide that. No one's going to give you a certificate, say, congratulations, you're now officially yeah. a writer and uh, you can now actually get on with it. <laughs> it's just, yeah. just mad. Now, one of the other things very quickly that I wanted to reference was this idea of how Teresa mentioned how she, obviously she, she has a journalistic background. She dealt with a lot of incredibly challenging scenarios and interviewed some people who'd been through some harrowing mm. life events. Yeah. I love the fact that she said in her fiction, she could write justice. She could create justice, even if you couldn't do it in the real world. And it is a wonderful way of, it's like a superpower, isn't it? That a writer has where you yeah. can make the world right even if it's just the world in your head or the world around you or your reader's world, you can make it right and you can put things to justice. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons why crime fiction is such a popular genre because it does have that resolution. And it's interesting, I think I've mentioned this before, Michael Conley, a uh, terrific writer, writes fantastic thrillers, crime thrillers, and very often, you know, the end with the great resolution, there's a showdown, someone's arrested, there's justice. He did a book of his journalism when he was uh, uh, on, did the crime beat in Los Angeles. And almost all of those true crimes didn't have that resolution. They were, I mean, his writing was brilliant, but it didn't have that satisfying tie it all up in a, in a, in a bow at the end kind of thing that you get from his novels. And it, I thought that was really, really telling. And, and I think when he spoke to us, he, he kind of, you know, he, he mentioned that's him, that's his way of making. And in, in yeah. a way, Whenever we write fiction, it's us making sense of the world around us and giving it some kind of resolution. It's us presenting an idea, challenging the idea, and then finding synthesis in that. And it's uh, it's really satisfying when it works. It's and it's one of the reasons it's so hard because very often when when you write a novel, you are kind of trying to figure out the meaning of life. <laughs> this mm. is why this is why we get tied up in knots about it. You know, you, you are you are taking an aspect of our lives and trying to make sense of it. And it can be in a crime novel, it can be a fantastical novel, it can be about someone's love life, uh, it can be about a moment in history, a, a, a day in the life of a single character, but. 
whatever you're writing, it's about the world around you and, and life in general. And um, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Now, the other thing Teresa said, she stopped watching TV for a year. Now, yes. I mean, I know there are people, many people out there that don't have TVs. They just and and the, thing, the trouble is now. I know someone somebody said they don't have TV but they watch Netflix every night on their iPad. I'm like, well, that yeah. doesn't really count, does it? But the point is, is that <laughs> there, and there, there are certain people who, you know, maybe maybe their form of entertainment is listening to podcasts and, and, and we love you for Hello. that. But I love the fact that, I mean, I've always had this thing, Mark, I must admit, I've always had this thing back, especially when I was younger, time used to really be my spidey sense and this kind of like trigger that I used to get where if I was doing something for like even half an hour and I felt like I was, it wasn't really worthwhile or it was just like, yeah, I would get antsy, antsy. Get antsy. I'd, yeah, yeah, I'd yeah, get yeah, antsy yeah. and I think I'm wasting my life and yeah. I'd be, I'd get it like yeah, yeah. At even 30 minutes. I mean, some people get it at like five years. I get it at like 30 minutes. I've chilled out a bit now uh, in my, in my <laughs> dotage. But the thing is, is that I love, I think there is this trade-off. There's a thing in, in economics called opportunity cost. And the idea is, is that, you know, if you're doing one thing, you, it excludes you doing an, infin, an infinity of other things. Mm. You can only do, especially us blokes, we can only do one thing at a time, right? So, exactly. Um, <laughs> but but the, point, the point is, is that, you know, uh, I think like watching, it's about, to me, it's about balance. I think, I remember being on a writer's retreat and it was a week long writing, like intensive writing. And there was one person on our, on our retreat, bless her, uh, who sat the whole week watching Netflix, um, Kung Fu movies. And, and we were like, Riven, I saying, awesome. so, uh, oh, yeah, I know, right? And we say, so how's the, uh, how's the writing going? And she said, oh yeah, I'm, I'm doing, doing research fight scenes i'm like oh okay and this is like day one day two day six more kung fu and we think okay now we're getting to a point where this is definitely procrastination um there's only so much you can take for fight scenes so i think there is a balance between you know taking time off giving your time giving especially if you're watching and we, we talk about like you know watching shows it's, it's it's important to do that if you're writing um but it's about keeping that balance um, but I wonder, I mean, I wonder what it was with Teresa where she just went like cold turkey, right? I mean, I wonder if she was just watching too much of it. Um, well, it's, I think it's part of that, it, like you say all the time, people come to us and say, oh, I can't make the time to write. And of course, you don't make the time. It, there's only a finite amount of time in a day. You have to find the time. And I guess she just looked at her day and said, what's the least productive part of the day? Oh, it's those couple of hours when I'm, you know, sat in front of the TV of an evening. And yeah. Uh, you know, you just need to find that we had in craft coaching last night, we had a whole conversation, a bunch of us talking about when we write. And there are people who write in the morning, there are people who write in the evening, there are people who write in the afternoon, you know, and, and have to work around family and work and, and just find the opportunities where it works best. But, um, yeah, but it's TV, I think, is, um, I mean, it's, it's well, it's the playing next episode in eight seconds. Yeah, that's yeah. the problem. Is it's be yeah. it's become like the infinite scroll of Facebook and and all of those wonderful yeah. websites that we get lost in. And I think the key thing for people to remember, I think this is this is the test, folks. If you're listening to this now, and if you're guilty as charged, this is your moment. We're gonna we're gonna remind you of this every week for the next however many years. If you're if you're watching 
an hour, two hours, four hours of Netflix. I know some people do, I mean, what's the ridiculous average stats of what people watch a day on TV, kids particularly, and computer games won't even go there. But if you are watching, say, an hour of Netflix a day and you're not writing, that's an issue. Watch 45 minutes of Netflix a day and do your 200 words. That's a better mix. Or even better, write, then watch. Then treat yourself. Write, then read, treat yourself. And so it's about getting your priorities in the right order. And I'm I'm gonna I'm de- definitely in coaching mode now. Well, I'm not actually because I'm kind of like teaching mode, I guess. But you have to hear this if you're watching four hours of Netflix and you wonder a day and you're wondering why you haven't got the time to write. I think that's the problem, <laughs> <laughs> right? Just- so it's it's about and so the, I have to ask this question to people: like, how seriously do you want to write a book? Like, seriously, guys, how much do you want this? Because if people can't do 15 or 20 minutes a day, there's the problem. And I know writing's hard, but that's why we create the 200 word challenge. It's to give you a reason to show up every single day to start writing. And then, you know, then make it your reward. In fact, you want to get to a place, like Sting once said, music is its own reward. You want to get a place in your life where writing is its own reward. Yeah. I mean, we have, we, we, we know so many amazing writers. They love to write. They should, they, they get antsy if they're not writing their mm. 200 words a day. And, and that's what you train, just like you train for resilience. You also train to get to that place where you can't wait to get back to your book. Yeah, there's going to be difficult days, but generally you love it. And you're a good example of that, Mark. I mean, you know, you, you have good days and you have difficult days, but generally I, I see someone who shows up each day excited as to what the writing day might bring. Yeah. And, yeah, and that, that's where we have to start right there. That's um, my and I'm saying point. this to myself. I'm saying yeah. this to myself yeah, as well. I'm you. not, I'm not Mr. <laughs> Guru who's saying I've got this sorted. We're all human and it's hard blooming work to it. Life, life is always pulling at everything to pull us away from the things that we know we need to be doing, the things that we're passionate about. And that's the bit right there that we have to get on top of. But mm. anyway, we could, we could go on and then we will, we're going to go on and we're going to go on in the extended because we have got some amazing extra things to cover. We're going to talk about near miss rejections that Teresa had and this importance of genre aware. And Mark and I were talking before the podcast, sorry, Mark, and we, we think there's a lot of people um, who are stuck in this genre between two genres. And it might be the one reason why people are not getting success and now might be the moment to re- review that. So, Join us in the extenders. We're going to go deep with that. We're also going to talk about advances. Um, Teresa mentioned about not having to pay them back. We're going to talk a bit about what that means because um, it's a bit of a dark, dark heart. Uh, we're going to also talk about the fear of bad track and this idea of a breakout book. And Mark's going to give us a deep dive on writing about setting. So, folks, if that hasn't tempted you, you know what? I don't know what will. Get over to the podcast. Go and support this podcast, bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. You will get access to the extendeds that we've done. There's some absolute gold dust in there, folks. Um, And uh, thank you to everyone who's already doing it. And we will see you on the other side. So, uh, Mr. Stay, before we dive into the wins, I want to tell you about a podcast win that, that, that we had, I should say, not I, but we had uh, this last week. And uh, I was actually, I had a new coaching client. Um, you know, I coach people in music 
and I coach people in writing and and in general life as well. But I had somebody who showed up to do a, a, a session with me um, in music, and he said, "Oh, by the way, your mum, my mum says hi. She's a massive fan of the podcast. And really, like, she's from Kentucky <laughs> in the wow. U.S. And I'm like, brilliant. So, hello to to Mrs. Mrs. Podcast Mum in Kentucky. I hope you're listening hello. today. But I just I just thought, wow, isn't it bizarre how far and wide like the podcast goes and these are two completely unrelated things and um so yeah thanks for listening folks really? <laughs> it's absolutely great so Love tell it. us about the wins this week mark okay got a lovely one from kate baker uh who's you know been amazing in the academy her amazing book uh, made of steel came out earlier this year uh, and she posted in the facebook group actually she said omg patience is a virtue a year ago i withdrew two short stories from three that I'd sent to this submission pile at People's Friend magazine, uh, which is a huge mag in the UK, and one one of those places where you can get short stories published. It said, I was planning to self-publish a collection, which never happened, but I left them one called Losing His Marbles. Uh, the contact confirmed on 8th of August, 2022, that marbles was in the system for consideration. Naturally, it was forgotten in the interim months, uh, what we've made of steel and everything, but she just received an email, uh, and this was just a few days ago, so one year later, essentially, and it's basically saying, yeah, we love this story, uh, losing your marbles. Uh, we're going to send you a contract, uh, set up payments, and uh, hopefully we can get more stories from you. <laughs> it's just fantastic. In cases, my granny used to get People's Friend, and the readership is huge. I'm really rather chuffed. Wow. You know, we're talking about resilience. We're talking about yeah. hanging in there. You never yeah. know when something – you've got to have skin in the game, people. You know, you've got to keep at it. So big congratulations to Kate. That's just fantastic. Kate. Just brilliant. Um, and a couple of lovely wins. Sarah Moorhead, who's coming back on the podcast very, very soon. Keep an eye, eye up for that. She says, I've got a book signing in Forbidden Planet and my teenage lads think I'm cool. Which is the things you have to do to win your kids' admiration. Now, that is – that's uh, and it's Forbidden Planet up in Liverpool, which is an ace branch. So that is very cool. You know, I've uh, I've not done a Forbidden Planet signing. I've done I've done them at Comic-Cons and stuff, but never in the store. So that is a real coo, -coo That's a real feather in there we go. Yeah. Any Forbidden Planet franchise uh, stores out there, give Mark a call. <laughs> tick, tick that one off your list. Yeah, that wasn't a... Uh... <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> you never know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And just a huge congratulations as well to Angela C. Nurse, long-time member of the BXP team. Uh, her latest Rowan McFarlane detective mystery, Lies She Didn't Tell, is out and available to order. It's just fantastic. Angela has just gone from strength to strength. Again, talk about resilience, just brilliant author who's really just... You know, uh, changed all her covers, experimented with her covers and reaping the rewards now. It's just brilliant. If you love thrillers, check it out. Put a link in the show notes. Fantastic. And uh, I just want to do a shout out to Sasha, uh, who wrote to us through the patron page. And she said, um, I didn't, she, we, we, we banging on about like uh, August is uh, share the bestseller experiment podcast month officially uh, now. Yes. Um, in fact, we might be, we might continue it in September, October, November, and December. So breaking news, folks. But Sasha <laughs> said that she, um, she said, um, I didn't just recommend it to one person this this last week, uh, or I, and or to two people, but she recommended it to um, an entire conference. <laughs> <laughs> 
The RNA she, conference, wasn't it? The was RNA, RNA conference. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. She says, I feel very smug about listening to Mr. D's recommendation request uh, on the episode tonight. As I just got back home from the RNA conference where I recommended the podcast to not one, not two, not three, but an entire room of people. Thank it was a session sure. on podcasting and we were there to talk about our favourites. Um, absolutely brilliant. So thank you, Sasha. Sasha Green, we really appreciate it. I love Sasha. She always sends us messages every week about the podcast. Absolutely we, brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah, we it. read them all, Sasha. Thank you we so do. much for sending that across. And uh, so, folks, um, we hope you've been inspired. I bet you there's a few people out there, Mark, are going, this, is the we- this was the episode I need to hear. We're gonna, <laughs> if it, it, and if it was, please send us an email and tell us. Tell us what it was about the episode that you heard that shifted something for you, got you back on track. Uh, this is what we wake up for and why we love yeah. to do this podcast. So please do share that. And of course, um, there are many different ways to find us on social media. Yes, uh, we are on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment, Twitter, Instagram, and threads. We are at Bestseller XP, so drop us a line there. If you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe. Please give us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. That stuff makes us more visible. Thank you, as always, to our editors, Dave and JD. And if you want to drop us a line, there's bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. You can email us there. Don't forget the 200-word challenge, 200wordchallenge.com. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, folks, if this is your moment, I think Macklemore said that once in a song, if this is your moment, sign up to the Bestseller Academy um, starting in September, folks. Academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Do it! All right, folks, have a great writing week. Enjoy whatever weather you get this week, whether it's lovely sun or whether it's pouring rain. Get out there and dance in it or sunbathe. Both. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Welcome to summer in England. Yeah. Have a great writing week, folks. And it's a goodbye from Mark One. And a goodbye from Mark Two. A goodbye. A goodbye. Bye.